Six people were going to come, so it's good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Enough postcards for everybody. Totally, and not everyone doesn't need a postcard. So should we get started? Let's do it. Well, hi everyone. Uh, it's about four o'clock, so I think we'll get started. Thank you for coming to our session, Accessibility for the 21st Century, welcoming all visitors to history museums and historic sites. I'm Caroline Braden, the Guest Accessibility Special Needs Assistant at the Henry Ford, and I'm very excited to be joined here today by uh, Marin Levad, who is the Museum Access Specialist at the Minnesota Historical Society, and also Meredith Martin-Gregory, who is the Special Education and Access Coordinator at the New York Transit Museum. So we'll save questions for the end of the presentation today. Uh, we have handouts on each of the tables. And we're being recorded today, so we're going to repeat the questions and comments into the microphones. So I'm first going to give a little bit of background on this topic, and then Maren will continue with that. And uh, then Maren and Meredith and I will each share some examples uh, from our own work and some tips for doing this type of work at your own institution. So first of all, who are we talking about when we say visitors with disabilities or special needs or accessibility within museums? Well, the audiences include people who have mobility limitations, are blind or have low vision, are deaf or hard of hearing, have developmental cognitive and learning disabilities, which includes autism and dementia, and also people who have temporary disabilities, such as a broken bone. So today, over 19% of the people living in the United States, that's one out of every five people, has some type of disability. And these numbers are likely to continue to rise in the years ahead. The population is aging, and by the year 2030, there will be more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 30. And also, more and more people are being affected by developmental disorders like autism and diseases such as Alzheimer's. So with the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, in 1990, museums were required to become accessible to all populations. ADA provided guidelines for them to make their spaces more physically accessible. In recent years, though, increasing numbers of museums have been going beyond the legal obligations of ADA 
to enhance their uh, services to and offerings for all of their audiences. And this has also been accompanied by a changing view of what disability means and how to address it. So it used to be viewed more in terms of a medical model, uh, that is like a diagnosis of a person's functional limitations. And it's now viewed more in terms of a social model in which a person is more or less disabled based upon their interaction with the physical and the social and the communication environment around them. So this has brought about a focus on removing barriers within that environment to make places more accessible and inclusive of all populations. And on this slide here, you can see a couple of examples of accessibility that's been incorporated into a museum exhibit and program. The photo there on your left shows an example of universal design a design that's made to be usable by as wide of an audience as possible. And that's been incorporated into an exhibit at the White House Visitor Center. This exhibit has raised line drawing maps and also several tactile components that are designed to give a visitor a sense of the architecture within a certain area of the White House. And these kinds of things are actually beneficial to all visitors, though particularly meant for people who are blind or have low vision. And then the photo there on the right shows an example of an activity from a family access program for kids with developmental and learning disabilities at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum in New York City. And this is one of many different types of access programs that exist for visitors with disabilities and, and special needs within museums. And another trend um, within museums in recent years has been the creation of accessibility-focused positions for staff members. And uh, Marin and Meredith and I have each had our accessibility-focused positions created within the past few years. So I'll turn it over to Marin now, who will continue uh, with some background and some examples. Hi. First of all, I'm so thrilled this room is packed. That's awesome for access. And I also think it's Friday afternoon. And you guys are still here, so that's great. So uh, my name is Marin. I'm from the Minnesota Historical Society. A little bit of background on us. We, are, um, we oversee a network of 26 sites and museums that range from metro area built in the last 20 years exhibiting museums to lighthouses and other things that weren't built for people with access needs. So we have a really broad range of challenges and opportunities. Uh, as this says, I'm a museum access specialist, and what does that mean within my institution? Um, oh, I'm not doing my good job. I am meant to be modeling good access presentations, so I will start there. It says, hello, my name is Marin Levod, and I'm an access specialist. When we give accessible presentations, we also say what's on the slide, because not everyone can see it, and that is one of the things we're going to be modeling today. So a little patience if you are concerned as to why I'm reading to you. So what you see on the screen here is my answer to that question, uh, what does it mean to be a museum access specialist? It's Calvin and Hobbes, my personal favorite, and they are flying down at the hill in a wagon, and Calvin says, the truth is most of us discover where we are heading when we arrive, and that's very much how I feel on this journey. I have been in my official position for two months. I've been working on access programs for about five years, but I've been able to finally make it a full-time thing, 
And so I'm really at the beginning of figuring out how do we really strategize for 26 sites and museums across the state with different communities? How do we prioritize and all of that? And I'm very aware that I'm not the expert in the room. Uh, I require access advisory committees. I require a network of professionals that we're developing so that I am aware that we are all learning throughout this whole journey. Why does access matter to the Minnesota Historical Society or to anyone? I think a lot of times we tend to think of access as, well, this is what they need. This is what someone else needs. And I need to remind you that variation in ability is ordinary, not special, and it affects most of us at some point of, in our lives. So when you talk about the access community, you're also talking about the diversity of people who were born with something we would consider a disability, whether it's physical or cognitive, but we're also talking about people who are pregnant and suddenly can't make it up the stairs. We're talking about someone who was playing hockey and broke their leg and now needs to use crutches for six weeks. We're talking about people who are 60 years old and starting to lose their vision or hearing. And those are two very different communities in themselves. People who are born with a disability learn very quickly how to advocate for their own needs. For people who are losing their hearing, fun fact, it takes about 10 years on average to go from the point when you actually start losing to your hearing to when you admit that you start losing your hearing. If any of you have a grandfather or a father who's losing your hearing, you probably know this to be true. And you might have noticed what happens in those 10 years. They nod and laugh when they think that when they're at a party, and even though you know they did not hear what you said, they will start to isolate themselves. Phones are the worst thing because now we can truly isolate ourselves. So instead of being a part of the family Thanksgiving conversation, you'll notice your uncle on the side checking sports scores. It might not be because he cares that much about how the Packers are doing. It might be because he is so disconnected from the conversation that he just quit. And as cultural institutions, what that means is some of your core members are going to start stop coming to public programs. What does this also mean? It means best practices need to be put in place because I don't know if you've ever been on a tour where someone's walking down a loud street and is like, hey, can everyone hear me? Great. Okay, guess what? My uncle's not going to be the guy in the back being like, no, could you please speak up? Thank you. I think I'm losing my hearing. He's not going to shout that. So we need to start with best practices. We don't ask the question, can everyone hear me? We make sure by having amplification and by have, having other access. The big message here is universal design is for everyone. And when you create an accessible situation for particular communities, you're actually busting it open and making access points for people who didn't even know they wanted access points. On the screen, we have a cartoon. And uh, there is a man shoveling the stairs for kids getting into the school. There is a kid in a wheelchair who says, could you please shovel the ramp? And the worker says, all these other kids are waiting to use the stairs. When I get through shoveling them, I will clear the ramp for you. And the child in the wheelchair says, but if you shovel the ramp, we all can get in. So this was clearing a path for people with special needs. This was actually designed by a kid with disabilities. 
And I think it's so true that so often we think of these special accommodations as being something just for a specific, specific disability community, and it's just not true. Um, we have some access programs, which I'll talk about, that have kind of busted open our general programs as well. So just a little quick survey of some of the programs that we do. You know, we have um, social stories for families. When they come with autism, you can download uh, a social story, uh, which is a pre-visit material that kind of helps kids make decisions and plan before they come. Uh, this is weather permitting. You see a child plugging her ears because she's in a simulated basement where there's a tornado going on outside. And the text says, in weather permitting, I can try on boots and light up an ice palace. If I choose to visit the tornado basement, I will hear a radio and it will be dark. I will hear a pretend storm and loud weather noises. I can leave the basement at any time. So this is just explaining one sensory-heavy space. And they, we have these, these different scenes for each of the things throughout our museum. Now, this is designed for people with, uh, with autism. However, I will tell you, my six-year-old is a very cautious six-year-old. And if I just push her in a basement where suddenly it sounds like there's a tornado going off, she's going to freak. But if I were to read this, she would feel empowered to make those decisions just like a kid with autism is. We have tours for people with memory loss uh, at one of our historic sites, which is uh, the James J. Hill House. And one of the things we do is we have sensory in every single space. So we, instead of doing our traditional 90-minute tour, we have a hour-long tour with a half-hour coffee and chat time afterwards. We have preset chairs. We do it when we're closed to the regular public, which means we can bring in lights from Target that are not historic but help light up the, the historic house. We can... Um, preset sensory items, and we can up our staff quotient. So one of the things is, if you're in the kitchen, we might invite everyone to um, try some shortbread. If we're doing weddings at the Hill House, we might play the wedding march as our group walks in and sees the pipe organ, and then we invite people with memory loss to play the pipe organ, and we always sing. Now, who here has memory loss, if you, you, just kidding, no one's going to say it if they do. <laughs> Who here would like to go on that tour? Who here would like to be, be invited to play a historic organ on a typical tour? I mean, come on, of course you want that opportunity. So there are things that our the staff at this site started to think, oh, like maybe we could pass around some objects or maybe we could play some music on a regular tour. And that kind of blew their minds in the sense of it, it's not just for access. So as we expanded our programs for people with memory loss across our historic sites, we realized, currently I'm not sure if you know, but based on Meet Me at MoMA, I'm sure many of you have heard it, um, the formula out there for people with memory loss really exists within the art museum world. Um, however, you are far more likely to have a historical society, a history museum, or a historic site in your town wherever you live in America than you are to have an art gallery. And so we're trying to really rethink, depending, no matter where you are, rural, metro, no matter what your collection is, how can you be a resource for people with memory loss? So, of course, we have the tour at the historic site at Mill City Museum in Minneapolis, where we have a 1950s uh, test lab where, that looks like a Betty Crocker test kitchen. 
we uh, do baking workshops. So we invite people in. It's kind of like a cooking show. Dry and wet ingredients are already mixed. And we allow people to enter at whatever level they want. And um, this is pretty cool because a lot of people with dementia, living with dementia, are in assisted living centers or at homes and have been exiled from their kitchens for five, ten years because it's no longer safe. We invite them to reclaim that identity because many of these are women who spent their whole lives baking and cooking for their families, and to take that identity away from them is a real tragedy. So we try to allow that. But you know what? We have some people who say, I cooked my whole life. I don't want to do this anymore. And we have people who say, and I was never really interested. So we allow them to engage in a sense of conversation, of smelling the baking, and of eating. And then we have other um, things happening in the baking workshop as well. So we, we look at it at a kind of Montessori level of enter where you're comfortable. Uh, continuing the expansion of our programs for people with memory loss, we moved to a historic site, the Northwest Company Fur Post in Pine City, a very rural community, where we said, okay, we're not going to have a rotating collection. It's not within living memory, so we don't want to do a tour. We don't have a baking opportunity here, but we have a community gathering space. We're not open all the time. Uh, we are handicap accessible in terms of it being one room and we have this, or one level, and we have this beautiful wraparound view of the fields. And so what we said is, all right, let's just be a cultural or community resource. So we run a memory cafe, which if you've heard, if you've ever heard of them, it's just a drop-off, or not a drop-off, it's a it's a drop-in program. Uh, all of our people come every month. They choose the theme for the next time. It's 30 minutes with our volunteers and staff of coffee and ketchup, and then we have a program. And I put that in quotes because it is a very loose program. We are not getting people from content knowledge A to B. We are not bringing in lectures. We are just trying to enjoy each other's company in a place that everyone feels safe and, and appreciated. So in this time, they all wanted to talk about horses, um, I work at a, metro, uh, a metropolitan area site where we have a lot of facilities people on staff that don't let me do anything. Um, however, here, there's a site manager who just doesn't, is much more open. And so they said they want horses. One of the interpreters is a horse trainer, and she said, can I bring my horse in? And he's like, that's fine. So we had a time with horses, and here they are oiling tack as part of their tactile experience. Um, and what's been really wonderful is they come back time and time again and they build a community of, um, of knowing each other. Another thing about this is this site has been there a long time. Every single one of them is a non-member of the historical society and every single one of them has either never been there even though they live in the same town or they haven't been since their kid was in second grade. So these are people who are coming back to the site after 30, 40 years or had never had visiting even though it's just down the road. And now they're seeing us. In fact, 85% after the first three said that they see the Minnesota Historical Society as a positive place for their health and well-being. Pretty cool. We also realize that the majority of our visitors are Caucasian. Um, however, if you know anything about memory loss, you know that people with uh, African Americans and Latinos are two times and one and a half times respectively more likely to be diagnosed with a dementia. 
And so we need to get out. They're not going to come to us. Our text is not in Spanish. We don't have Spanish guides. So, or, or, so what can we do to support them? So we partner with different organizations like um, these dance groups, and we go out and we throw huge dance parties where we do conversations and we, we uh, talk about memories and we talk about musical memories and we just support those communities because we realize um, until we spend a lot of time out there with them, they're not going to come to us. And so that's what we're doing with our dance halls. We're also partnering with National Museums Liverpool because we want that access to grow. Okay, so what if people can't come to any of our sites? Uh, we House of Memories is out of National Museums Liverpool. They've trained 10,000 professional caregivers about how to use objects to reminisce and create from museum collections. And they've created an app from their collections that, in, that allows people to do reminiscing and creative storytelling. And so we are in the process of partnering as their U.S. partner to develop a U.S. app for that. Lastly, uh, we are also looking at doing a weekly live broadcast from our IV Interactive Video Studio or Conferencing Studio. Uh, where we link in live with senior centers around the country and allow a conversation to happen kind of a webinar format. And that will feature a collections visitor or someone from our collections team, you know, history highlights, all of those things to allow people who are in senior centers to continue to access us. This is all really great, at least I think so. Um, so why don't we all do more access programming? Why aren't we all working all the time towards inclusivity? And there are some real challenges. Um, I don't want to sell you too rosy of a picture. The first one is money. Um, access costs money. If you want an ASL interpreter, if you want all of your public programs to have CART live captioning, if you uh, want to add any additional services, it all costs money. So doing my regular Tuesday morning public programs for the regular public, my speaker costs $200 to have live captioning. That's an additional $175. So I've just doubled my budget just by adding live captioning, which P.S. my audience kind of hates, and I don't care. <laughs> they don't like it. They think it's distracting, but I have to train them that this is an access thing that's important. Um, so money is the first thing. Time. It takes time to ask your public programmers, to ask uh, your tour guides, what have you, to spend uh, time making sure everyone is hearing, making sure everything is set up on their microphones, um, making sure that all of these extra access things are booked. And finally, I think a lot of us work on rote memory. Exhibit designers do the same thing they've been doing for 20 years, and if suddenly you say, oh, I need these three things to be included in every exhibit because it makes it more accessible, that's hard because unless you're sitting at their desk with them um, all the time, they're going to do what they've always done in terms of rote memory. Same for booking programs. If you're not used to constantly booking a speaker and then immediately booking a cart or an ASL interpreter, it's not going to be on your to-do list naturally. The biggest challenge, and this is what I would say, is especially for front-of-house staff and interpreters, is the question of what does success looks like with, look like with an access audience. 
When you work with K-12 audiences, when you work with a fourth grader or you work with a lifelong learner, you're pretty sure if you've been doing it for a while, all right, if I can get my fourth grader to know this content, if I can get them engaged and up and asking questions, if I can get that lifelong learner to come up after me or to listen respectfully, that, that looks like success. With the access audience, that is not the case. And in fact, in a room full of people with dementia, success is going to look different for every person. So again, we have a cartoon for a fair selection. Everybody has to take the same exam. Please climb that tree. And this is, of course, based off of the Einstein quote, if you judge a fish by their ability to climb a tree. That, that's not the actual quote, but you know what I'm saying. Um, so here's something. I had a new interpreter doing a program for someone with memory loss, and she came up and very honestly told me, I think you're wasting your money on this program. I cost $15 an hour, and I could be teaching people, but instead I'm, I'm with these people who some of them are nonverbal, and I'm not getting anything across. So I just feel like I want you to know that I, I think I, my time could be used better. And I said, thank you very much. Maybe you're not right for this program. Um, this is a prime example. This is Mary. Mary was at our baking workshop. She has very little use of her, um, her hands. Um, and this is her, her daughter-in-law and her son. Mary is also nonverbal, but they sing as they help her stir, and she smiles the whole time. And they, to them, to this family, that's success. Another story, we had a woman who was very irritable for a whole tour, um, you could tell there's some physical discomfort going on, and at the very end, we do a little tour of the 1950s lab, and she said she didn't want to go. She had said almost nothing the whole time, and then she sat with the bus driver. We had made Madelines that day, and she hadn't ate any, and so we went on our tour, and as we're coming back, the bus driver, Leo, who's amazing, waves us over and is like, oh my gosh, come here, come here. He had encouraged her to take a bite and in that entire hour where she had said nothing, she said, after taking a bite, she said, I remember Paris. Three words. The program managers who live with her full time had no idea she had ever been to Paris. They knew she'd been in the Navy and that she had traveled. No idea it was Paris. Suddenly, we have opened a box to those program managers. They went back, they got Parisian music, they got photographs of Paris, they called their family to see where else she had traveled, because just by taking a bite of a, of a Madeleine, she remembered something that allowed them to connect that identity. So 59 minutes, you could maybe say this is not a success, but for this program manager, those three words meant this program meant a whole lot to a lot of people. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves, success is not people high-fiving you after a class and saying, that was the best thing I've ever done. Success looks completely different depending on people, and that should apply to our general audience as well. So how can I help my make my institution more inclusive? Um, I am a one person in a staff of more than 300. I cannot be the only access person. It cannot rest on me. So I ask my staff to bring their whole selves to work. When we ask our volunteer pool, when we ask our staff members, do you have any personal connection to the access community? Every single person does, whether their grandmother is aging, whether they've ever been pregnant, whether their husband is deaf. 
They have something, and if they can bring their whole self to work and in every meeting bring that whole self and say, you know what, um, you know, I'm a copywriter in marketing, but I'm, I'm noticing that the font size is really small, and my mom would not be able to read that. If I can have every person in our institution bringing that whole self and that whole perspective, we're going to be a lot more effective, and people are going to feel a lot more rewarded. So now it's your turn. Oh, Lord. <laughs> now it's your turn. Um, do you, should we skip this to the end? Yeah, okay. I didn't start my timer, I apologize. Um, what I'm gonna have you do is I'm gonna have everyone grab a postcard. Uh, if you, there probably are not enough for everyone and we're just gonna do one thing. One of the things that the art, art museums do well that history museums sometimes fall back on is historical society, uh, is reminiscing. And I want to encourage you that History museums are not just for reminiscing. Um, they're also for creativity and for appreciating people where they are. So I want you to take a look at the postcard that you and your partner have or what have you, and I want you to answer a couple questions. And you can choose which one it is. Uh, it can be, what's your favorite vacation? It can be, what would you do if you stepped into this picture? Or it could be, what do you smell? What do you hear? And just spend, spend a moment answering that question. This is an activity we did with our memory loss people. And it's just a good exercise to, to think about um, using your artifacts in a different way. Oh, it's really quiet. Talk to someone next to you. All right, we're going to have, that's just a really base, sorry, we're running late, so I blab too much, as per usual. Um, so now we're going to have Meredith from the New York Transit Museum. You're taller than I am. Um, I want to thank you for speaking because I, as I told you, whispered to you, I think that you're coming at it with a really holistic approach, which is very important in accessibility, so you know, I was writing tons of notes and thinking about how I could bring this back to my staff, so thank you. Um, so I, my name is Meredith Gregory. I'm from the New York Transit Museum, and I'm the Special Education and Access Coordinator uh, at the museum. We, you know, have been thinking about physical accessibility since the Americans with Disabilities Act, but only in the past five years have we uh, begun to think about how we can meet the needs of the community and only in the past two years have we actually had uh, myself dedicated specifically to access. So accessibility and, and getting your institution in the mindset to think about accessibility and people with disabilities is a long process um, as Maren mentioned. So 
Um, you know, I'm just one person as well. We have a smaller staff of 20 uh, full-time staff and 30 part-time staff. But as one person, you really just have to take it day at a time and project to project. So I hope that all of you will go back to your desk and think about, you know, the one small thing that you can do to take accessibility and working with people with disabilities back to your institutions. Um, so I'm going to focus on autism. I think that's, uh, you know, what kind of a, at least in New York City, it's kind of a buzz word right now. And um, so I think I thought it was an important topic to comment on. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about our museum. We are located in downtown Brooklyn in a decommissioned subway station that was built in 1936. So we're completely underground. Um, this slide has our logo at the top that says New York Transit Museum. And uh, to your left, you'll see our bus area, which is called On the Streets, that explains uh, above the history of above ground transportation. I should mention that we are the largest organization, uh, largest museum that focuses on public transportation in the, new, in the United States, and we're specifically focused on New York City. So uh, there's uh, on the left, there is a newer bus from 1994, newish, and uh, across that is an older bus from the 60s and also a trolley in the middle of those two buses. And then the picture on the right is our platform level of our museum. We have train cars from over 115 years ago through today, um, elevated train cars, Long Island Railroad train cars, as well as subway train cars. Um, there's a, a bright blue or powder blue train car uh, showed, shown here, and that is our Bluebird train car that took people to the World's Fair in 1964. So you can actually get inside of these train cars and uh, touch everything in the train cars, which is really uh, nice. So that's what our space looks like. Um, more about our physical space. As historic sites and history museums, if we're not brand new, uh, we all have tons of challenges, and in fact, we do as well. In 2003, we had a capital campaign to create an, an accessible entrance, which is not ideal because we don't have an elevator. Uh, we get a lot of families with strollers. Strollers still have to go down our main subway steps. This accessible entrance is in a different location than the main entrance, so people with disabilities, um, anyone who wants to use it, has to go down into a different entrance that leads to the back of the museum where all the staff work. Um, it's a chairlift that takes two to five minutes to go down to each level. Uh, so if you have a large group of seniors or people with disabilities, it's gonna take them 30 minutes to get into your, mu your museum. Also our, uh, but I'm, 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 at the same time, I'm really excited that we at least have something. <laughs> um, so, on the platform level, we do have our uh, old train cars, as you saw before, and this is on the right side, there's a picture of our elevated train car, which is from 1904, and these train cars came out in 18, beginning in 1888, and so they have really narrow doors. They have a, a, a step that about, takes about six inches to get up onto, so these are inaccessible train cars. People um, in wheelchairs cannot get into this space. So what do I do with physical spaces like this with the challenges. Uh, with the lift, we do a lot of work to make sure that people know about this lift in advance. We put a lot of this on our website, what the lift looks like, how long it's going to take, my information's on the website so that people know who they can call to tell us that they're coming in advance to make it a, the process a little bit easier. 
We also uh, do a lot of staff training around the lift and physical space. For the train cars, we uh, you'll see I have a link here. Um, I tested it, and it's not working that great, so I'm not going to show you. But you can go to our website, nytransitmuseum.org, and on the accessibility tab, there is a link to a Google map that gives you a virtual tour of the train cards. So if any of your spaces are inaccessible, try to find another way for people to be able to explore it. So since people can't get into these train cars, we have a virtual online tour. So at least you can explore the old advertisements and the seats through this Google virtual tour. And that's something that Google approached us uh, to film our space and to have a virtual tour inside our museum. But I know other organizations that have had a, like a fellow or an intern create a video for them for one of their projects for the semester. So, okay, I'm focusing on autism. And as I said, as Marin said, many of our autism programs and things we've done for people with autism have just really opened up our museum to other possibilities. But I wanted to quickly mention um, a little bit about autism. I'm going to go over some characteristics, but the one thing I want to note is that there's a saying that if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. So what I try to do in all of my programs, from school programs to the everyday visitor, is have tools that I can use so that uh, you know everyone learns differently, everyone experiences the museum differently. Uh, so how can we reach people with autism um, when there's such a variance with, within the spectrum? So I'll explain that a little bit more. Um, but autism is a neurobehavioral uh, syndrome. So the slide says, what is autism? There's a puzzle piece to the left of the bullet points, and that is a a national symbol for autism. It's an Aut Autism Speaks, which is a national organization. It's their symbol. Um, and it's a neurobehavioral behavioral syndrome that begins to show signs around the age of two or three. And some of the symptoms or characteristics are um, social differences, so having trouble communicating with others. Uh, language deficits, so uh, most people don't get language until three or four. There might be uh, some speech impediments, things like that. Uh, often repeated patterns is something that they do. So doing the same action over and over. People with autism also tend to like repetition. So uh, if you're having a program, having a really structured and having the same, doing the same activities, you know, every single session or every, every single tour, every time you see them, or at least having a schedule for your tours so that they know what to expect in advance and they, um, you know, they know that these steps are going to be repeated. They often have narrowed interest, and so uh, we get people who have an interest in trains and transportation. I'll talk a little bit more about that soon. And then 50%, many people think that people with autism are little Einsteins, or they're all savants, or they're all geniuses. And that is the case for some people do have those uh, interests and are really great at one thing, whether it's art or math um, or writing, but uh, many people with autism have an intellectual dif dis disability, 50%. Um, so why is this important? I th I'm so shocked every time I see this statistic. One in 68 people um, are diagnosed with autism, and that was a study that came out a couple years ago. If I could just see by a raise of hands, who has worked with people with autism, have a personal connect connection to people with autism? Um, 
Great. So, I mean, this is crazy. Like, the fact that everybody in the room knows somebody who has autism or has worked with someone with autism as, or is personally affected by it is pretty astonishing. So, it's an, it's, uh, autism is something that we should all be thinking about in our museums because it really does, um, it's prevalent in our communities. So, we've had so, a couple of programs for about five years now, but when I came on, I wanted to do something for the everyday visitor. So the person who was going to come to our museum on a busy Saturday, and they just could not stand the space. It was too loud, or maybe the lights were, were too bright, um, which, which both things are challenges in our space. Um, a lot of times people with autism have sensory processing disorders or have a uh, sensitivity to uh, light or, or loud noises. So that's something that we try to take into consideration at our museum. So I wanted to do something that like anyone who's visiting on a Saturday could use. And again, these were made with people with autism in mind, but we're hoping that other people, whether it's, you know, a mom with her child or um, an adult who just likes to know what they're going to do before they come to the museum could use these tools. So one thing we have online and also um, in our, uh, to check out at the museum, is called a social narrative. It's very similar to the social story. Um, and this explains in first person what you're going to be doing at the museum. Many people with autism have trouble with perspective taking. So my dad is on the spectrum, and when he is, you know, sitting at a table with, with other people, um, he will just talk at that person and tell them facts for about 30 to 40 minutes and not really picking up social cues that that person doesn't want to talk about what they're talking about or they want to leave the room. Um, he can only see from his perspective of that he wants to talk about what he's talking about. So having something in first person that they're going to understand uh, – you know, from their perspective, what's going to happen at the museum is really helpful because that lessens the anxiety of what they're going to be doing at the museum when they visit. So we have pictures of our um, entrance. It tells you that you're going to have to wait in line. It tells you what exhibits we have. And again, just giving people preparation so that they are, um, they know what to expect when they visit the museum. And again, this is great for anybody, uh, who, who just needs more preparation. Another thing that we offer besides our social narrative is called a sensory kit. And this is something that you can check out in our store for free. We just ask people to sign uh, out the kits and then a retail gives them the kit. It has the social narrative. Our social narrative is online if you want to check it out at nytransitmuseum.org. But there's also a social narrative in the kit. We also have these... We also have these visual schedules. So oftentimes people uh, with autism like, again, to know what they're doing at the museum and would like to plan. We do not have a map of our subway station. So it can be really overwhelming to come down into the subway station and not know what, you're, what to expect for the day. So this can lessen anxiety. It can also help... You know, if a, if a child, we have some of our um, visitors who really like our train cars and they never want to leave the platform. They could stay there all day, every day. But maybe if you have this kit, you can say that first we're going to visit the train cars and then we're going to go. So if a child is saying he wants to stay on the train cars all day, you can refer back to the schedule and let them know that, oh, 
train cars are finished. Let's put it in the all done section. What's next? Goodbye. Yeah, it's, it's time to go. And so this, again, can help set expectations, can be great with families, can be great with individuals, can be great with adults. And this sensory kit is for anybody to check out. Uh, the information's on our website. And so it's really great for anyone who just wants a little more structure for their visit. We did get a, a small grant to make these schedules, but the social narrative, I just did it on my own. And uh, I just made the initiative to buy some headphones. We use the headphones for our school programs as well. Uh, so these are really cost, like low-cost things that you can do. And again, just even putting on your website the quietest hours at your historic space or at your museum, letting people know who have autism or who have sensory processing disorders or have sensory needs that you're thinking about them, even just on your website, really makes a difference and makes it makes a difference and makes uh, your space more welcoming welcoming for them. How am I doing on time? I have two more slides. <laughs> okay. I'll take two more minutes. Um, we also have an early opening at our museum, which is really easy to do. We open an hour early to families once a semester. And this is for all families uh, who have children with disabilities and some, some adults come as well with their caretaker. And this is a really nice community because it's a judgment-free zone. Parents know that if they come during this time, there are other families who have children with disabilities, and no one's going to be judged if your child is having a meltdown or having, you know, flapping their arms in public. No one cares because they're all probably experiencing the same thing as well. So it's really nice to have that quiet time before the museum is open just for those families. We also offer free admission during that time, and we have various activities, uh, such as a quiet space. And so we take one of our gallery rooms, we close the door, we uh, dim the lights, and we have some bean bags, what we call sensory toys, like there's some on your table, like squishy balls. Uh, we have this, uh, in this picture you'll see two kids laying on the floor, and one kid is in a beanbag playing with a, with a sensory toy and one kid's just like chilling on the floor having a great time. And there's a string of lights kind of coming from the side. So anything with calming lights is really helpful as well. So we have a quiet space during that time just so that families know that you're thinking about my specific child. So I know if I come to this museum that they're going to have a space for me if my child is having uh, trouble being in that space or being in a loud environment. So, and then we do uh, extend those activities into uh, open hours. So some families like to be with families who aren't for that event. So we do first have the early opening and then keep it open uh, while we're open to the public as well so that um, there's that inclusivity piece. Okay, this is what I really wanted to talk about. Um, our program, Subway Sleuths, which is for uh, second to fifth graders with autism, who have a passion for trains and transportation. Um, we were getting a bunch of train buffs to our museum, kids and adults, and we really wanted to meet their needs. And that's what uh, I've really learned about accessibility is go out into your community and see what the needs are. We, there were so many kids with autism that we were getting to this museum who that we weren't really connecting with and that also weren't getting the resources that they needed in their community. Um, and they just wanted a place to meet and hang out and have other train buffs. So we made it into a social program. And we worked with 
consultants about five years ago, and one of our consultants said the goal of Subway Sluice is to accept and honor the strengths of students on the autism spectrum and tap into their shared interests to make them feel comfortable, competent, and excited about social interactions. Um, on the left, we have a picture of our one of our second and third grade Subway Sluice. Excuse me. Our second and third grade subway sluice on a subway train ride with their facilitators. Um, each session, we have three sessions, two for second and fifth grade after school and one on Saturdays for fourth and fifth graders. Each session is led by a speech-language pathologist, a special education teacher, and a museum educator which bring, who is bringing in that meaty train knowledge. So they are really getting supported through their language, through their social skills, and getting that train knowledge that they crave. On the right is a picture of four of our subway sluice in one of our elevated train cars, and um, they're holding hands, which is, you know, a big deal for some people on the spectrum. Oftentimes it's hard to even look at someone in the face. For us, I can make eye contact with you right now, um, but that might be a big deal for someone with autism. And so we're working on the tiniest of skills of just staying with a group, being able to play a game. Uh, these sessions happen for a semester uh, once a week. So we have 10 sessions this fall and 12 in the summer, or excuse me, 12 in the spring. Uh, here's a picture on the left of two subway sluice on our train car. They, are, they each have roles during these games. So this um, student is on the floor building tracks, and he has a visual in front of him that tells him what he needs to do for this activity. And he's looking, he's making eye contact, waiting for a signal from the other sleuth to tell him where to put the tracks. So they each have a role that makes them interact with each other, but the connection is the trains, the connection is the content. On the right, there's two subway sleuths working together in a scavenger hunt around our museum. One sleuth is the reader and one sleuth is the writer. So there, again, we're forcing them to work together, but the connection is the train facts. So my call to you is think about the content that you have in your museum. What can you tap into that might interest people with autism? What makes your museum special? I think it's so great that we have this trained content that we can really connect with the autism community. Um, so I just, lastly, I just want to say that if you are interested in connecting with your autism community, go to look for Autism Speaks, look for local walks in your community. Often they let uh, museums or historic sites have booths at those fairs. Go to school fairs or resource fairs for people with disabilities. Work with your local schools for special education classrooms, teachers. Maybe there's a special autism school in your community. Um, if you have a family you know that has a child with a disability or with autism, really just invite them to come to the museum and hang out with them and ask them what they want. Really, I think the first step is to work with the community and ask what, and see what they want and then go from there. So um, this program was started because people were coming to our museum and they wanted more from us. So it, it really does just take tapping into your community and finding out um, their needs. So I'm going to give over to Caroline. Thank you. And um, I have Subway Sleuth books in the back and flyers. If there aren't any more Subway Sleuth books, take my card and I'll send one to you. Thanks. So.
Yeah, thanks, Meredith, and uh, thanks, Marin. And I'll move on to accessibility at the Henry Ford now. Uh, I've been the accessibility specialist there for about a year and a half now. And while we had a few sporadic accessibility-focused projects and things done, before that time, there really hadn't been the focused effort that there's been over the past year and a half. So I'll share some things that we had before and also uh, many things that we've been doing since I've been there. So for anyone who is not familiar with the Henry Ford, it includes Henry Ford Museum, which has exhibits on everything from cars to airplanes to agricultural equipment, Greenfield Village, which has over 80 historic buildings on over 80 acres, our movie theater called the Giant Screen Experience, and the Ford Rouge Factory Tour, which is a working factory in which you can see Ford trucks being made. So we average about 1.7 million visitors a year, and uh, hopefully some of you are planning on coming tomorrow during the unconference. So the photos here on the slide show a few of our offerings for our guests with special needs. Uh, one thing that I created last year was a list of buildings in Greenfield Village that have limited accessibility. And this is now available for download on our website. So it has the buildings that have limited access, the number of steps into the buildings, uh, if there's a staff person inside who can come outside to provide interpretation to anyone unable to go in, and also if you can still see what's inside from the doorway. We also have large print maps available uh, for people with vision impairments. We have sign language interpretation available upon request. And we have sensory assistance kits available for our guests uh, with autism and other sensory processing disorders um, with noise-canceling headphones, earplugs, and communication boards for communicating with someone who's nonverbal or speaks another language. And these kits are available at our museum and village ticket desks. And then this past April, we held our first couple of events called Sensory Friendly Saturdays, which were designed for our guests on the autism spectrum and with other sensory processing disorders. So these days included loud sounds turned off or down in the museum, maps that showed areas with loud sounds and bright lights, activities located in quieter areas, uh, signs that marked off quiet spots, and resource tables with information and representatives from the Autism Alliance of Michigan and the Color of Autism Foundation. So on this slide here, there's an example of a, one of the resource tables, and there's a family at that with someone from the Autism Alliance of Michigan. And there's an example of a kid doing an activity in a, a quieter location. And uh, we also had some sensory-friendly movies at our giant screen experience theater in which the lights were turned up and the sound was turned down. And prior to having these days, we worked with some staff members from the Autism Alliance of Michigan to help train our staff in uh, communicating with and interacting with people on the autism spectrum. So these days were well-received, both on our social media and by the people who came to them. So that's helped contribute to us having another sensory-friendly Saturday coming up on October 1st. And the days in April, they were actually not just done by the Henry Ford, but they were a collaboration between the Henry Ford and a couple of other Detroit area museums, the Detroit Institute of Arts, Michigan Science Center, and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Uh, so each of the museums had a sensory-friendly Saturday on a different Saturday during the month of April, which is National Autism Awareness Month. The Michigan Science Center had actually held a couple of sensory-friendly days in the past, so by working with them, we could learn from them and the things that they had done. 
And also by all of us working together, we could cross-promote the events on each other's marketing materials. So this brings up something that I've learned uh, through my work, which is the importance of sharing resources and learning from other museums that have programs and offerings for people with special needs. There's models out there, um, and you've heard some great examples today. So think about what might fit in at your own institution. Another offering that we've been developing over the past year or so are tactile or touch tours. And these are for our guests uh, who are blind or have low vision. And we now have these for Henry Ford Museum. And I've also been working on some things for Greenfield Village and the Ford Reach Factory Tour, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Uh, and we'll actually be demonstrating a shortened version of the Museum Tactile Tour tomorrow during the UnConference, if anyone is planning on going to that. Uh, the, the development of the museum tactile tours actually started uh, in the summer of 2015 when we had a request from someone who was blind and he was visiting with his friend who was blind and they were wondering if we could give them a touch tour. We actually had a couple of our presenter staff members who had given uh, touch, touch tours in the past but it had been many years since those but one of those presenters uh, gave these two people a touch tour and by observing that and seeing what was included on that, uh, that has helped lead to our uh, development of more standardized tactile tours that we have now. So we're fortunate in that we have several artifacts throughout the museum that can be touched and that people don't need uh, gloves to touch. And one of these is the Rosa Parks bus, which is shown there in the photo on your left. We also have a very large Allegheny locomotive, a round aluminum house called the Dymaxion House, and also an interactive Model T building activity. And we've also put together a set of models that we include on our tactile tours. And I have a couple of these here today. Uh, some of them were from our gift shop. Uh, we also have some that were made with um, Moldorama machines that we have throughout the museum. And uh, we also... I used a 3D printer uh, to make a couple of others. So this is a, a 3D printed Dymaxion house. Thank you. Uh, and we found that models are particularly handy when an artifact is really large, as they help give a sense of the whole thing when someone can only touch a small portion of it at a time. And then we also talked with our curator of transportation to um, ask for, to receive approval to touch several cars within our Driving America exhibit when guests use gloves. And you can see a photo of that uh, there on your right. And we don't include that on all of our tactile tours, but we do on some. So Greenfield Village um, is a little bit different than the museum. We had a tour model already in the museum that we could, model, that we could base the tactile tours on. And we don't have um, an equivalent of that uh, tour in the village. So in the village, what I've been doing there is really thinking and uh, going building by building and thinking about what's already there that's tactile or multisensory or what we could do there that's multisensory. And uh, the photos, I've also been talking to uh, presenters in the buildings and managers of the different areas of the village to get their thoughts. And the photos here on this slide show a few examples of things that uh, we've done when we've had groups of people who come who are blind or visually impaired. Um, one thing we've done is we've allowed them to touch some animals in the, the barn at Firestone Farm. The photo there on your lower left shows an example of a, a presenter. She's um, demonstrating the phonograph within Thomas Edison's Menlo Park Laboratory. So they can hear that and also touch uh, tinfoil that's used for that. And the photo there on your right 
Uh, shows an example of a carding demonstration at the Daggett farmhouse. So kids are using wooden carding paddles and wool from sheep. And the people pictured here um, on this slide, they all um, belong to different organizations serving people who are blind or visually impaired within the state of Michigan. So I've been really fortunate to have some great working relationships with people uh, from these different organizations who have helped bring the groups, who have then provided feedback that's helped um, me develop these experiences. And uh, they've also helped get the word out that we have such experiences, so that's helped bring people uh, to them. And last uh, fall, I received a request from a couple of people who are blind from the National Federation of the Blind of Michigan. They wondered if they could bring a group of students who are blind to the Fort Rouge factory tour uh, this past summer. Um, back then, I hadn't really thought yet about uh, what we could do there that was tactile or multisensory. So I thought that this was an opportunity to try some things out. The Fort Rouge factory tour, it has two different theaters with different films. It has a number of uh, different cars on display. It has an observation deck looking out over a living roof that's on top of the factory. It has a working factory, and you can walk along an upper walkway and see people putting parts on trucks. Uh, and also has an outdoor, environmentally focused tour. And the photos here on this slide show a couple examples of things that we did when the group came this summer. They brought uh, 23 students who were blind, and they, they visited for about the whole day. And uh, so one thing that they did is they could touch uh, a chassis that's out on display or the under part of a truck. You could see that in the photo on your left. Usually that is behind a barrier, but they could touch it that day. They also could touch sedum, which is the plant that's used on the living roof. And they could touch various uh, plants and trees outside during that tour and hear um, bird calls. And they also learned a lot just from the sounds and the smells and the descriptions that were provided when they were in the factory. And um, then at the end of their visit, we had a short debrief period where they provided feedback on the day that's been really helpful both to me to uh, further develop these experiences and also to the um, staff members who helped with the day because they could hear um, some feedback on the things they had done and said and get some, get some uh, feedback on things to move forward. So a few other things about the development of tactile and multisensory experiences. Uh, as I've been saying, it's really important to work with people whom these experiences are designed to benefit. So in this case, people who are blind or visually impaired. And the man pictured there on the f in the photo on your right, he is um, the man who requested the touch tour last summer. And he's come back a couple of times since then, and he's provided me with feedback on things that I've been working on and also ideas of things that he's seen at other museums around the country. The photos there on your left show a couple of examples of things that we've incorporated into tactile tour training that we've provided to our staff members in the museum and the Fort Rouge factory tour. So that training uh, for it, I've worked with an organization that serves uh, students who are blind or visually impaired within Michigan, and they've provided me with a teacher of students who are blind and visually impaired and also someone who is blind herself to come and, and help with that. And it's in, the training itself has included tips on working with people who are blind or visually impaired. It's included advice on providing descriptions. And the photo there on the upper left, it shows two presenters. Um, one of, they have neither, neither of them has seen this object before, but one of them is gaining some practice in description by describing it to the other one who's blindfolded and learning what it's like to form a mental image of something through touch and description. 
And the photo there on the lower left shows an example of an activity that uh, is included in this training, and that is uh, experiencing what it's like to walk sighted guide. So the presenter there in the orange shirt is walking with her hand on the upper arm of the trainer in the black shirt. Um, and that's something that someone who is blind might do if maybe they don't have a, a white cane or they don't have a guide dog or they're moving quickly through a space or moving through a tight space or something like that. And we've also incorporated other activities into that and, and found that um, even after the training, it can help if presenters uh, walk around with uh, one blindfold and the other providing descriptions. That's something that the staff at the Fordridge Factory Tour did to help them prepare for the group that came this summer. So a few tips and takeaways. First, uh, involve individuals with special needs and organizations serving these individuals in program development and implementation. Second, learn from and share resources with museums that have programs for people with special needs. Third, incorporate multi-sensory entities whenever possible, as these really benefit all visitors. Fourth, be flexible and open to new things. Uh, sometimes this may be the first time that you or others at your institution are trying something new for a new audience. And sometimes you may have a plan in mind, but things don't go exactly as planned. But know that that's okay, and oftentimes anything that you're doing for these different audiences is helping open doors and give them opportunities they may not have, a, have had a chance to have um, otherwise. And finally, think about what fits well within your own institution. So there's been some really great examples shared here today. So think about what might fit in at your own institution uh, with what you have and the visitors who are coming or visitors who you would like to have come and, and take some ideas back uh, from today or other things that you read about, about access. So, um, so thank you. And here's our contact information. And do we have... Questions? Yes. I guess I'm thinking about especially when you're talking about, you talk about several people who are talking about kind of spaces that you think are just being accessible through. And I'm curious to your thoughts about historic house museums, where they pretty much the whole place is being accessible. Yeah. Did you want to go first? No. So we're going to repeat the question because we are uh, being videotaped, so we want to make sure everyone can hear. So the, the major question is, in general, what do you do with a historic museum or a historic house that is completely inaccessible to people with limited mobility, is what I'm assuming. Um, so this is a really timely question because I, um, as I said, took over as like the institution's access specialist two months ago and since then have been fielding questions left and right from the different site managers with these questions. And um, I actually just spoke with a colleague of Meredith's um, about another, you know, historic elevators and all of these things. And so I'm going to turn the question back out to you all. Is there a historic house organization or access group that is like a listserv? Because yes, there are many things you can do. You can, first of all, have pre-visit materials that explain what is accessible. You can have virtual tours on your website or videos. Once people get in, if you can get to the first floor, you can have videos, audio tours, virtual tours, um, interpreters come down and greet people on that first floor. There are many different workarounds, but I would love to hear if there is, if anyone knows of a listserv or um, books that they'd recommend that deal with this topic, because we can't be the first people asking these questions. Any ideas out there? 
Okay. Well, then I'll keep trying to answer those questions. But the workarounds is what we tend to do. And the biggest thing we try to do is empower people to make their own decisions when they come. So, um, or to, to know what is accessible. The biggest thing that I note is oftentimes you go to somebody's website, including some of ours right now, that say, accessibility. We are accessible. We have one wheelchair. Great, it's seven steps up to your front door. So what does that mean? So there are, the more information you can provide, what does accessibility mean? It's not just limited mobility. It's do you have ASL interpreters? Do you have hearing devices? Do you have T-loops? Do you have things in different languages? How far is the walk from your parking lot? Hey, it's helpful to know that it's a mile from your parking lot to your visitor building because some people don't want to walk a mile to get there. So all this pre-visit material is so helpful. Um, and then those workarounds in terms of different virtual tours, which Meredith has one of. Yes. Uh, the Say that again. I'm I'm sorry. Um so kind of the first access point in terms of using that Google map. One, obviously it's on our website. When I whenever I interact with a visitor who cannot get into those train cars, um, and also our facility staff who also handle the lift know this as well. Um, that is something, that is like the number one thing that you mentioned. Some of our train cars are inaccessible, but you can visit, you know, here's my car, you can visit our website online and look at the virtual tour. Um, we also have it under our sensory friendly uh, area to let families know that this is something that they can use to prep their children for the visit. And I know uh, one mother who writes a blog for her son with autism specifically mentioned that Google Map was really helpful for her child before the visit. And now he loves train cars so much that he actually goes home and can explore those train cars at home as well because she doesn't want to take him to the museum every week. Um, so I've had little snippets of like personal information. Um, I don't now that we have, we just got our new website last week, so I don't, I probably can now go online and ask my like press person how many clicks we've gotten, but I only have a couple of anecdotes of how much people are actually using that. But I think it's really important that staff are mentioning it at the museum and that people know that we're thinking about them and that they're welcome in the space. And that's the first thing we get on like TripAdvisor reviews or Yelp reviews is not how inaccessible we are that we didn't have an elevator, but how like great the customer service was and how welcoming we were. So um, I think training is a big part in making sure that people are letting visitors aware of, of the tools that we offer. And I'm gonna follow up with one more big question to the group. And this is the fact that those of you who might have an inaccessible second floor or lighthouse or what have you, we all create materials, whether they are a photo book or whether they're the new fancy gizmo. I think we're at a point also where uh, I think a lot of us know K-12 teachers got a lot, some of them got technology in their classrooms. But suddenly it, they were doing the exact same things with those that they would do with say a projector. So why have the technology? One of the questions is, number one, how relevant is that technology gonna be in five years? So if you create a super cool virtual tour that's gonna be unsupported by your institution in three years, is it worth it? 
Does it work for a lot of communities? Is it being used? These are all really important questions. So that's one of the things that as I form our access advisory council of people from uh, with disabilities from around the Twin Cities, I'm gonna be asking those questions because there's no point buying 57 iPads for all of our places that have, and recording things and going up there with fancy technology if people say we'd really just prefer a photo album um, or we're never gonna go and use that on the website because of X, Y, or Z. So again, it's going back to the community, asking and recognizing that person A may say, yes, I'll use this all the time. Person B will say, I'd never use this and figuring out what works for your institution. So big questions we're all still answering. Uh, yes, in the blue. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really good point. Um, she said that, you know, families, I think everyone, we all are so different and some people prefer programming in the morning. Um, some people prefer evening or afternoon programming. And I think that goes back to Marin's point of like going back to the community and making sure that you meet their needs. Um, I know that the Intrepid Museum, which Caroline mentioned in her uh, presentation, started a parent advisory committee. And so they had started an early opening uh, in the morning and, you know, I think they did it for two months or so and then they decided to have a parent advisory committee that meets once a month. They give them cookies and coffee and I believe they give them a, f a membership for the year for their time. And they ask them to come once a month and just talk about like what they want for their child, what they want their, for their family and how their experience was for um, that specific event. It's really, it's a focused focus group and where they're just talking about their early opening. Um, but again, I think as Caroline and both Mara mentioned, it's really important to involve the community to, to ask them what they want. So that was a really good point, thank you. I would also recommend doing open access hours that are free if you can. Um, my museums are not free. And one thing we notice is if you have an access, especially within, a community like the autism community where you might, people who have sensory overload, they might melt down, they might have a bad experience. And so if they are paying for their full family, which might end up being $60, $70 to come to your museum and five minutes in, they realize it's not the right place for your their family, that's a real loss for that family. What we found with our open access hours for families with autism is we are free for two hours for that family and they register through Awesome, which is the Autism Society of Minnesota. And um, what we hear from the parents is they are afraid to come because they don't want to spend that money if it's not going to be success for their family. But once they come, see that our staff is trained, spend two hours with us, they become not only members immediately, but they become members who come 
six, 10, 20, 30 times a year and tell every single person they know that they should come to our museum. They are the best marketing. So if you serve the access community well, Mm -hmm. it is a really good thing for your institution, which is not why you should do it, but it's a a bonus. Any other questions? I just want to say finally, um, just something to add on to Maren's point is, you know, we do it for multiple reasons, but I do agree that it has brought an entirely new audience to our museum now that we're known as accessible and doing these programs. And not just for the visitors that come, our visitorship has increased, but also the funders have started to come. When they see that we're doing these programs, a lot of funders in my community are really interested in working with people with disabilities and what we're doing for specific populations. So funders from like national funders, IMLS, um, NEA and uh, local e- to local family foundations have been really interested in the work that we're doing and so we've gotten a lot more funding to our museum just because we've been starting to work uh, think about um, people with disabilities and um, we also all of us I think have been acknowledged in some way for the work that we do through like awards and things like that for example the Subway Sluice program just got as a finalist for the National Arts and Humanities Youth Program Award Um, So, and that brings in even more funders in in publicity and press. So this really is an issue that many people in our community are thinking about and addressing. And so um, it can, you know, up your visitorship, but also your funding as well. Any other questions, comments? Oh, yes, no one. Uh, yes, the question is about the tactile tours and if they're given uh, before hours or after or during. Uh, we give them during um, the time that the museum is open or the village or the Rouge. Um, and uh, they're about an hour and a half in length. And uh, they're included with the cost of admission. Uh, so there's not like a charge on top of that for them. Um, so, yes. And right now they're... Uh, upon request, and we will be having one coming up on October 15th that's uh, open to the public, so we have been having people uh, sign up for that one. So that's the first one we're doing like that. Staff training is also on my to-do list. Um, One really cool place to check out, of course, because they get funded for everything, is MoMA. (laughs) MoMA has an amazing series of videos that they did for their staff by people with disabilities talking about how they use MoMA. And um, it's, it's a really, you kind of have to dig around, but it's there, and it's a really great series of videos. I think one of the biggest challenges in this issue is staff training because Yes, I trained all of our front of house and um, the interpreters on communicating with people with dementia three years ago. Guess what? If those interpreters have learned 16 other programs and haven't interacted with someone with dementia in a, in a year, they're not going to remember. And that's the same with autism and all of those things. So I think we have to really write it into our policies. We have to create um, things like MoMA did, which is videos where people can uh, refresh themselves. So I'm looking into creating 
with the Minnesota State Council on Disabilities, a series of webinars that people can check in. But I also really hate webinars as a training tool because I think we all check our phones and Facebook while we're doing webinars at our desk. Um, and so I don't think it's a really great engaging way to do it, but it's probably the most cost effective and real way to do it. But what we do is when we have staff who specifically opt into access programs, uh, we make sure, and they ask for more and more, that we are doing check-ins at least quarterly and then a, a yearly training for the staff that works specifically with dementia. But I would, I would start by looking online um, at places like MoMA, who've done really wonderful work, and they're um, on our recommended reading list. Uh, there's some books you might want to check out. Um, unfortunately, I think there, we're never all going to learn everything we want to know about every disability community, but for myself, I try to read at least one book uh, about this work a uh, month, and it's written into my work plan, um, so it gives me a little time to think and headspace to think. Does anyone else have ideas? We're way behind time. Um, so I just quickly, also on that uh, sheet, their Art Beyond site has disability training videos. Uh, taught by people with disabilities, so that's a great place to start. Um, if you have programming for people with disabilities or if you're doing a sensory kit or a social narrative, none of it matters if your staff don't know that you have that and your staff don't know how to treat people with disabilities in your museum. So that's where I started when I started working at the museum was training. Um, so please feel free to take our cards in the back. We hope that this is an open conversation. We have so many access programs and things that we do at the museum that we didn't talk about, so please check out all of our websites. And um, come talk to us if you have more questions. I know this is a big topic, and we love to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.